Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you'll help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support. And thanks for listening. I'm Greg Dalton. I'm Ariana Brocious. And this is Climate One. I'm in California, which is still drying out from some record rainfall and big storms recently. Some places in Los Angeles received 10 inches of rain in two days. That's a month's worth of rain. And all that rain means a lot of flooding. It means downed trees. It means power outages. It has some real severe consequences. And, you know, the same day I was reading about the California floods, I was also struck by news about Chile's wildfires, these huge wildfires that have been ripping through Chile's coastal region, which are also really devastating. And this is climate change. This is the stuff we're seeing with increasing frequency happening around the world. Scientists tell us they know they have measured from space that for one degree of warming since industrial times, there's 7% more moisture in the atmosphere. We remember from high school science, warm air holds more moisture. That means more severe storms and rainfall. And we know why this is happening. It's because of emissions. Emissions that we as humans are creating, a lot of which are coming from our tailpipes of our gas-fueled cars. That's right. Vehicles are the biggest source of emissions in the United States, and they're growing where other emissions are declining. One story that caught my eye that didn't get a lot of attention recently is that the engine manufacturer Cummins has been caught cheating on their emissions tests. So you may have not heard of this company Cummins, but that doesn't mean you haven't encountered their products because they make engines for hundreds of thousands of trucks and buses. And most notably for today's episode, the Dodge Ram, which is a a truck you've probably heard of. Every vehicle sold in the U.S. must get tested for how much pollution comes out of the tailpipe before the vehicle can go on the market. So passing these tests is critical. And it was discovered that Cummins installed so-called defeat devices to fool the lab tests into thinking that the engine's emissions are much lower than they really are. And, you know, this really reminds me of what we heard about with VW, Volkswagen, not so many years ago. So Cummins and state and federal regulators have reached a settlement of around $1.7 billion for using these defeat devices. And that's a pretty big fine. It is the largest fine ever under the Clean Air Act. And the other thing that was really surprising was this. We want to do our part to address climate change and any other environmental challenges that threaten our future. Our emissions leave a positive impact in every community where we operate. Cummins had been known in the industry as a leader on emissions reduction and even used that as a big talking point on their promo material. And a couple of years ago at a transportation conference, I was on stage with Jennifer Rumsey, then president, now CEO of Cummins. She talked a lot about what Cummins was doing to advance new technologies and clean up its engines. So I'm personally quite disappointed and upset that this happened. 
Right. But in this era of somewhat rampant greenwashing, I think it's not uncommon for CEOs and executives to glaze over some aspects of their practices to make their businesses sound better. But let's point out that Cummins wasn't the only company in the news related to emissions scandal. Right. Since the Cummins news, BMW is facing a new government investigation in Germany into another possible emissions scandal. And over the last 10 or 15 years, GM, Ford, Daimler, which makes Mercedes, Subaru, Nissan, have all faced litigation or investigations into their emissions. Cheating, especially on diesel engines, seems to be so common in the industry. In the wake of the news about Cummins, I reached out to the Alliance for Automotive Innovation for comment. No response. You also talked with Rachel Moncrief, acting executive director of the International Council on Clean Transportation, about the news of the Cummins settlement. I was surprised. I was definitely surprised about the fact that they were using defeat devices. I guess we were not as much surprised about the fact that there was elevated emissions on on a bunch of Ram trucks, because actually my organization had analyzed emissions data, and we had actually found elevated emissions on some RAM models. At that time, Cummins and and the EPA had announced that they had discovered um, some emissions deterioration issues, that they were recalling some vehicles around. So we sort of thought that was the main reason. So we were surprised to hear that there was also defeat devices. Can I just ask, what is emissions deterioration? I'm not sure. Does that mean it gets worse as the car's driven more miles? Yeah, yeah. So there's there's basically like almost a mini power plant on the back of some of these diesel vehicles to control the emissions. It's a fairly sophisticated system. And like mm-hmm. a key part of that system is a, a catalyst, just like all of the, the cars out there have a catalytic converter. And if not made properly, they can sort of deteriorate faster than they should. And so that sometimes happens. And then typically the manufacturer will work with the EPA to recall those vehicles and fix them. So it sounds like kind of a filter on the tailpipe that gets clogged and doesn't work as well over time. So Cummins installed defeat devices in um, Ram and other trucks. How do they work? What do they do? Well, there's many different kinds of defeat devices. Um, In general, what it is, is they're purposely reducing the effectiveness of the emissions control device um, without getting prior approval from the EPA. And that can happen in many different ways because there's a lot of sort of sensors and controls and everything, again, around these pretty sophisticated emissions control devices. But we don't know exactly what it was in this particular case that hasn't been released publicly. Right. So cars and trucks these days are, you know, mobile entertainment platforms and they're highly sophisticated. Is it possible that defeat devices were there unintentionally? I would say no. I mean, there's the typically what happens is these emission control devices are are calibrated by the engineers, you know, working on these systems and they know them quite well how they're going to behave. I, I would think it would be unlikely that they could sort of accidentally install a defeat device. Okay. So it's not possible that someone like, oh, turned a screwdriver or changed some code and it slipped in there. The the settlement has forced a recall as those Cummins engines are almost in a million vehicles. Many of them are Ram trucks. What's Mm -hmm. been the fallout for Cummins so far? Yeah. Still early days, I think. So it's it's really difficult to say. I'll tie it back. I think we're all familiar with the VW scandal. When that happened, we weren't kind of sure what was going to happen with VW. 
I would say to VW's credit, they really did sort of turn around the culture of the the company from everything we've seen. Um, They did huge investments in battery electric vehicles. They have very public targets now for EV sales goals for all of their brands pretty much globally. So I'm curious if something similar will happen at Cummins, if there's anything that they will do to sort of get more aggressive around really moving towards fully zero emission vehicles. Right. And Cummins and VW aren't the only ones to receive hefty fines and get caught cheating. How common would you say this type of cheating is in the auto and truck sector? Cheating versus finding loopholes in the regulations um, (laughs) are something that I would like to, you know, mention. So what we've seen is that it is very, very common. In fact, in many, many tests that we do, the emissions from vehicles, and I'm not just talking about sort of like diesel NOx emissions, which is this particular case, but even the CO2 emissions can be much, much higher in real world driving than it would be in the lab or or what you would think it should be based on sort of the official targets that have been set. And that is something that's very, very prevalent. Whether those are all cheating or whether those are just exploiting loopholes is a lot of times difficult to say from from where we sit. Um, Mm -hmm. I will sort of just give a little plug that that's one of the major benefits that we see with battery electric vehicles because they don't have a tailpipe, so we don't have to worry about this problem. Mm, Sure. Yeah, it's hard to get intent. And also shows how laboratory conditions don't reflect real-world driving, right? That's how West Virginia caught VW, because they actually put their cars on the road and drove them around with human beings and realized, wait, this is different than the lab. Something's going on here. Yeah. And and hey, we contracted West Virginia to do that work. So just to give a little picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, your, your group was part of that revelation. Yep. Yeah, yeah. That cheating by VW in that particular case was very, very egregious because the the emissions were like an order of magnitude higher than they should be. But a lot of times we might be seeing things that are just only double, something like that. I, I do think it's very prevalent. And I do think, you know, we should actually consider ourselves fairly lucky in the United States. We have a environmental protection agency. We have a Department of Justice who has the authority. And I guess in this case, you know, the political will to really pursue these kind of cases in many or maybe even most markets that we work in across the world. That's just not the case. Right. And also outside groups such as ICCT, checking the regulators, et cetera. There's different layers of kind of observation and verification. How do you think this will change how Cummins operates? You said it's early days. Do we know? And and there's some, I guess there's some litigation going on uh, with the Department of Justice. What do you think this is going to mean for Cummins and, and for trucks? Yeah, I would like to say that the way that we're seeing the world going is that I think we're all seeing in the light duty car sector that EVs are are really coming now. We have already regulation in Europe that's going to go to 100% EV sales by 2035. We have a regulation that's about to be finalized, ideally, <laughs> in the U.S. here uh, on a similar trajectory. And, you know, heavy duty vehicles are a little behind, but the really good news is that I think we're finally at the stage where we can confidently say we have the technology um, and it's going to be cost effective from a total cost of ownership perspective to actually be able to move away from needing to have an internal combustion engines in the trucking sector. And I think most trucks that are on the road today can be replaced by by battery electric trucks. Mm-hmm. 
a lot of the manufacturers are sort of already getting on board with that. They're doing massive investments. They're making commitments. The infrastructure is is slow, but it is coming. So, you know, I just hope that Cummins will be sort of getting on board with that as well. Right. And meanwhile, there's still this calculus. And we've heard that GM, Ford, uh, we know about VW, now Cummins. What is it about the, the incentive to cheat that makes these companies risk billion-dollar fines and settlements? And B- VW, the stock got it, took a huge hit. You know, the, the CEO of Audi got a suspended jail sentence for mm-hmm. one year and paid a million-dollar fine personally. What's the payoff for cheating? Yeah. I would say specifically in the VW case, it's very interesting. I, I think that was a very built-in culture at the time, VW. They weren't like a massive player, obviously, in the U.S. market, but they were selling a lot of diesel vehicles in Europe. And in Europe, they basically were not doing very much enforcement. And we had known this for years. I mean, there was a lot of very high emissions coming from diesel cars in Europe where, where diesel cars were much more prevalent. And the manufacturers were really not held accountable. Um, so I think, you know, what probably happened is... VW came to the U.S. and was like, hmm, we can just kind of do a similar thing here and maybe we'll get a slap on the wrist. I think they were very, very surprised at the level of penalties that they got, both civil mm-hmm. and criminal. What was learned from the years after Dieselgate that could make the Cummins settlement more effective at preventing this happening again or more effectively using the money that comes out of it? Yeah. Because the Volkswagen settlement, obviously, the the for the the civil case, the Cummins settlement slightly larger than the Volkswagen settlement, but they Volkswagen also had a much larger criminal finding, so they had a, there was another like twenty billion, basically, and so the, the the actual like money that went back into trying to undo some of those harms from that excess pollution that had been happening was higher in the Volkswagen case than it will be in the in the Cummins case. But that being said, I mean, I do think, you know, the fact that we had the VW settlement going to states to help them sort of get ready to install, you know, electric vehicle charging and all this stuff. I mean, it it did help us to get prepared for where we are today, where the EVs are kind of getting more mainstream and coming out. But I think it did set us up for for a good situation now. So as we wrap this up, what is the most important outcome of Dieselgate? Yeah. To me, Dieselgate really, really changed the game, um, not just in the work that ICCT does, but just overall in especially helping to speed up this transition that we know is going to have to come anyway if we have any hope of staying anywhere close to the Paris uh, climate targets. We need to transition to battery electric cars. And I think in the end, if you look back, Dieselgate actually did a lot to help accelerate that transition. Sure. Tens of billions of dollars in capital was moved by VW. And that, to me, pressured GM and other companies. Mm -hmm. Rachel Munkrief, thank you so much for sharing your insights on Climate One. Thank you. We know that companies try to cheat for a reason. There are financial incentives to fool these emissions tests. Right, because cheating allows them basically to cut corners and they can save money on every car and truck produced. And in VW's case, they wanted to build market share in America, but their diesel engine couldn't meet our stricter emissions standards. So they used a defeat device to cheat on the emissions test. And eventually they did crack the technology to make their diesel engines meet the standards, but they still actually decided it will be cheaper to keep using the defeat device. 
Yeah, that's totally flabbergasting to me that they actually figured out the technology to solve the problem and still opted in favor of more pollution. And, you know, I had one of these diesel VWs. It was a great car and it seemed like such a great combination of features because you could go so far in a single tank of diesel and purportedly had low emissions. But regulators had a hunch that something was up. And over the course of years, their investigation got sharper and sharper. Coming up, how did VW get caught? We really put them in a corner where they had no other answer other than just to admit that it was a defeat device. That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. I'm Ariana Brocious. Recently, the engine manufacturer Cummins got caught cheating on their emissions tests. They were making engines that you find in trucks like the Dodge Ram. And those engines were fitted with a device that allowed them to pass emissions tests when they should have failed them. If that sounds familiar, 10 years ago, the same thing happened with VW and their diesel cars. Ah, yes, Dieselgate. And uncovering that deceitful practice was a huge feat in and of itself. It took a whole army of engineers working in different organizations to crack the case. If you want to understand how they did it, you've got to start with an organization called the California Air Resources Board. The California Air Resources Board touches anything that emits. Uh, so that's pretty much everything in our economy, right? It's vehicles, it's factories, it's uh, farms, it's trees, <laughs> uh, it, everything that emits um, and interestingly, a lot of people don't know, the California Air Resources Board was created by Ronald Reagan in the late 60s. Uh, and the California Air Resources Board predates uh, the United States Environmental Protection Agency. It predates the United States Clean Air Act. So California was a leader uh, even back then, and it was bipartisan. That's Hector De La Torre, a member of the California Air Resources Board. We are a board with about 1,600 staff statewide, mostly technical staff, a lot of engineers, a lot of scientists um, that are doing the analysis that leads to the regulations. He says it actually took years for regulators to figure out that VW was cheating. At the time, regulators didn't know that much about diesel technology. Diesels had, had never been very popular in, in California or in the U.S. for that matter. Alberto Ayala worked at the California Air Board and led the investigation. As we began to promote and expect uh, the uh, fraction of uh, diesel cars in the fleet to grow, we quickly realized that we didn't really understand the technology. We had not tested it. We had not researched it to the level that we had other technologies like gasoline cars, for example. And that was really the, the beginning of, of, of our um, interest in bringing the cars in and, um, as I often say, just kick the tires, just trying to get our, our feet wet, trying to understand the technology 
And um, just just by the mere fact that we started testing uh, as many different types of cars as we could get our hands on, um, it was that's when it became clear to to us that some cars were not performing the way that we expected them. And that's when the authorities came in, but not the ones you'd expect. Hector de la Torre remembers that moment well. It's actually a really great story. The European Union wanted to affirm that um, clean diesel was a thing and because you know they have a lot of manufacturers over in Europe that were making diesel vehicles and claiming that they were very, very clean. And these vehicles had passed all of the CARB tests, the normal ones, for every vehicle that's sold in California. It has to be tested by CARB. So uh, what happened was they hired the University of West Virginia to affirm that, that these cars were fantastic and clean. But then they got some odd test results mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that were not matching the test results that CARB had done when the vehicles had been built in the first place. And the California Air Resources Board had analyzed the vehicles like it analyzes every vehicle that is sold in California, regardless of what the federal government does. California has its own stricter rules and regulations. And part of it is because we have some areas, namely in the Central Valley and the Los Angeles Basin, that are more polluted than the rest of the state or, in in fact, more polluted than the Clean Air Act allows. So California has its own authorities. Uh, we have to check in with the feds, but we, we have our own authority. So for that, we do our own testing of all vehicles. And the two didn't match. The testing that was done by CARB when the vehicles were first sold and, and throughout their tenure, and the test results that West University of West Virginia was getting. So they asked us to double check what they had done because they thought they had done something wrong. <laughs> um, and what we found out was uh, that the University of West Virginia had done much more on-road testing than is normally the case. Normally, you do it in a lab. You you put the the vehicle on a dyno. Kind of like a, a treadmill kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so most most of the time that's how cars are tested and there's this, there's a cadence to it right there you speed up you slow down and so the testing is all kind of very rote but when they took the cars out on the road um they were getting very different readings and so they again they thought they had done something wrong you cannot control the patterns on the road right you're going to hit a light you're going to speed up you're going to slow down uh, at different cadences. Well, and, and different, would, uh, there's a lot of driver variability too. People's got to, you know, people have a heavy foot or they, yeah, so there's human exactly. variability and all that sort of thing, which is why I guess I understand to get consistent results, you do it in a lab, but that allows companies to cheat. <laughs> and that's exactly what they did. They put in what is known as a defeat device. Uh, it is a computer in the vehicle that can tell when there is a pattern to the driving that is happening. And if there's a pattern, then it assumes it's being tested and it downshifts everything to reduce emissions, Uh, which if it's random, uh, the computer would turn off and the defeat device would not engage and it would just do its normal thing. So that is, that was the key to this case was uh, taking the car out and and they normally are driven uh, out, but but for very 
very brief periods compared to the lab. Uh-huh. Um, and so in this case, they took it out and drove it more out in the wild, so to speak, and um, found the same things that the University of West Virginia was finding. And then we knew there was something wrong. When the dust finally settled, VW was fined $2.8 billion. How was that money spent? Well, the feds got um, a good chunk of it, and we got a good chunk of it. Again, because California has separate rules, and they broke our laws too, not just the federal ones. And that's why we were entitled to part of this. The part that was spent in California was put into um, a multi-year commitment to mitigate the pollution that they had done with these diesel vehicles. And so over the last few years, in fact, just last week, we did the last vote on the last tranche of $800 million uh, from that settlement that went back into the communities, back into uh, the transition to zero emissions. So we have done things like supported uh, zero emission car share with that money from Volkswagen. We have supported... Uh, building new charging infrastructure in the state of California. We have supported promoting EVs in the state of California. Uh, And then we've done some other things that were direct emissions reductions, purchasing clean vehicles to replace dirtier vehicles so that we would reduce uh, the emissions. All in all, uh, it cost uh, Volkswagen over $20 billion when you take into account the the vehicles having to, to be taken off the road uh, recalls that they had to do, et cetera, et cetera. Over $20 billion it cost them for cheating uh, our systems. And interestingly, I mean, we started with Volkswagen, but um, we've been doing this for a while. Uh, the One of the earlier cases was in 1997 uh, when General Motors uh, did something uh, similar. They had software on uh, their vehicles that was not taking all of the data Uh, that was being produced by the vehicle as it was running. And so it was giving a false uh, impression of the emissions that were being produced by that vehicle. So it goes back 1997 and beyond that car companies tried to cheat uh, California's laws and they were caught too. Even after regulators knew VW was cheating, Alberto Ayala says it took years to break the news to the public. The agencies did not announce the violation until 2015. And the reason for that is because we spent all that time doing a lot of testing, going back and forth with the company. It wasn't a trivial issue, but at one point in time, in in late 2014, the company, for other reasons, had already planned a a recall. And before they can do that, they have to get uh, approval from the agencies. And they sold it to us as an opportunity to fix the more recent problem. Uh, and that makes sense to us. We figure, uh, let's be efficient about it. They're going to be bringing the, the cars to fix this completely unrelated problem that will present the opportunity. And, and it made sense to us at the time, and that's why we approved it. Regulators confirmed the cheating. The next step was take that evidence back to VW. After years of work with the company going back and forth, we really put them in a corner where they had no other answer, which was a, a, a lie now we know, other than just to admit that it was a defeat device. It, it really was a point where they just had no other place to turn than to admit the cheating. 
One important thing to remember is VW was not the only company trying to cheat. Here's Margot Oge, who's been a top pollution regulator at the U.S. EPA. Almost every company has cheated, from Toyota to GM to Honda. What was different here is the level of cheating. I mean, 40% above the standards. And the fact, as Alberto said, they kept on lying. Let me give you an example. In 2009, under the President Clinton, we caught all, all diesel truck manufacturers cheating for a decade. They were improving fuel efficiency and they were cheating on NOx. It took us 10 years Nitrous to figure oxide. Out. Nitrous you... oxide. <laughs> the first company that we caught, because we tested the engine, Cummings engine in our lab, I brought them into the office. And they say, well, you know what, you know, uh, we really could not read the regulations. They may be vague. One company after the other, all seven of them came in. Within six months, the Department of Justice had a deal with them. They polluted one million metric tons of NOx. By the way, we never recover more than 10% of that. The total penalty for these companies, all seven of them, $1 billion. Why? Because they admitted early on, they didn't keep on saying, you know, we're not cheating, we haven't done anything, you know, keep on lying. So every company, for the most part, cheats. And in the U.S., the good news is that we do have strong, you know, federal programs, and California is very strong. So between California and EPA, we enforce those laws. In Europe, they have never had an enforcement case against the car company until the diesel gate broke. So this is how VW was able to get away with their scheme in the U.S. But how about Europe? So basically what happened, Mercedes, for example, I'm not picking on Mercedes, could be any of these companies, goes to um, Portugal and they ask a private company to certify their car. And they pay them. They don't pay EPA, they don't pay California in the U.S. So the company in Portugal gives them a certificate then Mercedes takes it and can introduce their cars in any country in Europe. No penalties, no enforcement, until now, after the diesel gate, that things have changed. After years of investing heavily in diesel, VW changed their tune. They had a religion when it comes to diesel. Diesel was everything for them. So starting 2015, VW has made huge commitments to electrification of the $90 billion that the industry totally is going to spend on electrification. $40 billion comes from VW. So Tesla was there showing the way, but Tesla is not the only way. You have a company like VW, which still is the number one company, 600,000 employees, that is committed to this point. I cannot speak for them what's going to happen next year or the year after. But right now, I can tell you with a lot of certainty that they are serious about electrification and they make the investments. So looking at the economics of electrification, that soon, in the next five years, electric cars will be as cost-effective as diesel cars on the internal combustion engine. The fact that in Europe, in Germany, um, Stuttgart, the house of Mercedes, Munich, where BMW is, 
the, the, the highest court in Germany said that these cities can ban diesel. You can imagine the chill factor that is going down the spine of all these companies. So setting Tesla aside, Dieselgate has a huge impact beyond what happened in the US, in Europe and other countries, to get cities and states realizing that the air pollution that they're facing comes from diesel cars. London, Paris, they're talking about banning diesel, even India, even California. But actually what is happening in Germany, where these most powerful companies are, to ban diesel cars, I think, is a big, big win for electrification. So regulators and the car company had duked it out. But over the span of years, hundreds of thousands of the cars they'd been arguing about were on the road, being driven by actual people who had places to go and needed those vehicles to get there. How did this news hit them? I own a uh, 2013 Volkswagen Passat TDI six-speed manual. That's Philip Forbes, a VW owner in Hollister, California. I got a job that I knew was going to involve a lot of driving about 50,000 miles a year. And the day after I started, I went and bought this car. Mainly it was just purely financial. I wanted to save money. My environmental concern was more the uh, non-renewable resource of fossil fuels. You know, in my mind, this was a vehicle that would consume less of that resource. And so that was a good thing. My car is one of, I believe the number is 12,000 or fewer out of the almost 500,000 in total, there will never be a fix available for my model. Honestly, this hasn't really impacted my views on Volkswagen. I know they're far from the first company who's done this. Obviously, it's wrong, but uh, I'm going to keep driving the car. You know, I'm driving 50,000 miles a year. I've driven this car over 1,000 miles between fuel stops before. That's insane. I mean, if I had $11,000, but not this car today, I have no idea what I would replace it with. So, uh, you know, I'll keep driving it. There's a saying, it's actually, I really like the saying, uh, which is, your mileage may vary. That's Edward Niedermeyer, author and auto industry analyst. And, and this is something I think everybody who's ever owned a car knows, right? You get the window sticker, uh, which comes out of the, the testing that the regulators do. Um, and that's sort of a, a baseline that you kind of hope to achieve. And, and some cars are better at, at hitting that and some are not. And, and actually, a lot of it has to do with how you drive the car, you know, how aggressively you accelerate. Um, and, and certainly at a, in this country, we don't really think or talk or, or teach people about how to drive more efficiently. It's not really part of our, our discourse around cars, right? Um, and so the challenges with catching cheating really comes down to this issue, right? Um, the, the regulatory system is set up to be an even playing field. That's why we test in labs. We can control the variables, right? Um, and as a result, once you get them out, cars out into the real world, there's going to be variation from that because the conditions vary. A headwind, a tailwind, things like that. Um, and so um, I think people are, are very used to sort of seeing some variance. And I think the car companies, that's one of the reasons it's so hard to catch this kind of cheating is because people just expect these variations to exist, and rightly so, because you know the real world is is very you know chaotic and and, and variable, um, and also um, you know consumers are are quite conservative. They get used to certain things and they want to keep doing them that way. Uh, things like 
you know, time between gas stations, uh, you know, stops for fuel. That's actually really important, and it's actually a really big challenge when you start to think about the new technologies that are coming down the road that will hopefully replace um, some of these these more polluting ones. You know, new technology is is hard to develop, but I think when you compare that to changing people's behavior, uh, it's actually easier. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about emissions cheaters. If you missed a previous episode or want to hear more of Climate One's empowering conversations, subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your pods. Coming up, what's the best way to handle an industry that won't stop breaking the rules? These cheating scandals just lead us back to needing to get to zero emissions on all of our transportation, and we are absolutely doing that. That's up next when Climate One continues. It's been 10 years since the VW emissions scandal known as Dieselgate. With the recent news about the engine maker Cummins doing much the same thing, you might wonder, did the action taken after the VW scandal have any impact? Let's hear the rest of my conversation with Hector De La Torre. He's a member of the California Air Resources Board, which helped uncover the Cummins cheating. Well, we, we have had multiple defeat devices. That's been the new leap forward. And I think, you know, talking about Volkswagen, we put everyone on notice after Volkswagen that we were going to revisit every single vehicle in, in production and being sold in California. And so we went out and retested with this new knowledge uh, about defeat devices, because again, that was like, a, a, that was new uh, to us. Having software that doesn't include certain things like GM in the late 90s or Ford in 2014, right before Volkswagen, they had uh, some limitations on their emissions control systems same same kind of thing as what GM had done. But the idea that you would have a defeat device that is specifically there to cheat our testing and, and make it seem cleaner than it is, that was a new dynamic. And so we had Volkswagen, then we had Fiat Chrysler. Uh, we found that they were cheating with their Jeep Grand Cherokee and Dodge Ram 1500s. That was one that came right after Volkswagen. And uh, Navistar, another uh, diesel truck manufacturer, they cheated by submitting one thing and producing something completely different. In the case of Audi, which was owned by VW, uh, Rupert Stodler received a suspended jail sentence of one year and nine months for fraud in the Dieselgate scandal, also fined about a million dollars. Does the California Air Board have power to put executives on the line? It's one thing to a billion here, a billion there. It's kind of the cost of doing business, right? Can the, does the California have the power to go after the executives themselves? We have not done that, and I do not think that we have that authority. Um, maybe the attorney general does mm -hmm. uh, uh, through through his authorities, but CARB itself uh, does not. One of the biggest outcomes of the Dieselgate, as uh, you mentioned, was EV charging network. Electrify America was a company created for that purpose from the VW settlement. 
That network has been plagued by reliability concerns. Some reports say 20 to 30 percent of the time. Last year, California's Air Board added performance metrics when approving the final $200 million for the Electrify America charging network. You know, what are the changes and what's the significance of adding reliability requirements for this state penalty money? I spoke specifically to this at, at our last board meeting where we approved uh, the last tranche and included some of these protections. What I what I said to my colleagues and, and to the public was uh, that CARB needs to be in the consumer protection business for EVs. The vehicles themselves, which we are doing, uh, and it's not good enough to just have these chargers out there in the community. They need to work. Yeah, you can see that there. VW created this company, not because they wanted to, but because they were forced to. That's not what they do. Their heart and their business is not really in it. And they're doing it, you know, it's kind of like a chore your parent tells you you got to do, but you don't do it very well because... Yeah, but, but it's it's not just Electrify America. It's not just VW. Um, we have found that most of the charging infrastructure is substandard. Uh, and that is why, again, we at the California Resources Board need to be a more focused on the consumer protection, that it's reliable, uh, that it's available throughout the state. Underserved communities uh, have their share, uh, obviously near the highways for folks who are on road trips, et cetera, that, that these, these are all available and working for the general public. So the air board that we're talking about, the California Air Resources Board, has brought in, as we said, billions of dollars by catching car companies cheating. Some would say that, well, you're interested in uh, busting companies because you fund your own coffers? You know, is the Air Board becoming too dependent on these big uh, fines to fund the agency? Not at all. Uh, the money does go right back out in, in the form of programs. I mentioned some of them for Electrify America. We also enforce uh, our regular emissions uh, regulations. So, for example, we have had situations where trucking firms um, were not complying with uh, are just our regular diesel emission in those situations, we will find them. And then the money goes right back out in the form of mitigation for the pollution. So uh, I have been at many a ribbon cutting at schools that are right alongside some, some freeways like the 710, uh, where they put in filters in classrooms to protect the students from that diesel uh, that is, that is right next door. And so, um, there are many, programs like that that we run um, that are based on the fine monies that we received. Uh, so it is, not a, it is not a situation where we're getting the money for the agency to pay for staff or things like that. No, that, that funding is, is built into our budgets every year, funded by the legislature. What do you think is the real end game that should be done on light and heavy duty trucks regarding local pollution and climate change? Well, I think, you know, the variety of cheating scandals on um, internal combustion engines, whether they are gasoline or diesel, shows that we have to get away from uh, uh, combustion, period. And so we have the advanced clean cars rule for passenger vehicles. We have the advanced clean trucks and advanced clean fleets rule, which is a supply and demand regulation for medium and heavy duty trucks going forward. By 2035, there, they, there, there will not be for sale a new internal combustion engine passenger vehicle, and there will not be new uh, internal combustion 
medium and heavy duty trucks sold in the state of California. They will all have to be zero emission. That doesn't mean we're taking away people's cars. It just means you will not be able to go buy a brand new internal combustion engine. And it, again, these cheating scandals just lead us back to needing to get to zero emissions on all of our transportation. And we are absolutely doing that with these regulations that have a glide path over time so that by the time we get to 2035, there will be significant numbers of zero emission uh, vehicles on the road. In fact, uh, California last year, around 25% of new car sales in California were zero emission. Uh, that, that That's way above our targets. So that is the market speaking. Those are consumers that are deciding they want these vehicles because of high gas prices, because the lifetime cost of a zero emission vehicle is less than an internal combustion engine. There's a lot less moving parts that can break. Uh, and, and the fuel is cheaper um, as well than gasoline. And then on the diesel side, we already today have, are two years ahead of our targets on medium and heavy duty trucks that are available today, um, that are being used today. So we're very proud of that. And we're going to keep pushing on medium and heavy duty uh, trucks to be transitioned to zero emission as well, specifically because of the diesel issue. The road to zero all across our economy. Hector De La Torre is a member of the California Air Resources Board. Hector, thanks for coming on Climate One. Always a pleasure to see you, Greg, and uh, thank you. Um, you know, we we just uh, we are here to protect the public, and uh, the w- the way we do that is by cleaning up pollution that gets into our lungs and harms us uh, in multiple ways. So, we are uh, absolutely honored to be representing the state of California, that is a leader in the United States and in the world. There's still a lot we can't answer about the Cummins settlement. It's still being litigated and negotiated, and not a lot has been made public. Right, and sadly, it sounds like this kind of cheating is a pretty common occurrence in the transportation industry. And it's been like this for decades. I talked with an insider who told a story about an early attempt to cheat on the emissions test. These cars are tested in labs with wheels spinning on treadmills. When the hood on the car was open, a device triggered the engine to run more efficiently because they knew the only time it would be running with the hood open was in a lab for testing. And as the cars get more sophisticated, so does the cheating. Now it's complicated computer programming that's able to achieve the same thing. Driving in a lab and driving out on the open road is very different. So the fines obviously make the headlines, and there's some generally good things that have come from these settlements. More EV charging, more access uh, for low-income communities. Lots of good things can come from the money that's collected by governments for these settlements. And here's one that many people may not know about, electric school buses. A school in Montana applied for money from the state to buy electric school buses, and that money came from, yep, you guessed it, the VW settlement. I read that story, too, and I think electric school buses are really cool. Yeah, and they operate really well in the cold weather, which was an added bonus, as they found, and they're replacing diesel. So it comes full circle here. Another outcome of the VW settlement was the EV charging network called Electrify America, It was supposed to provide more charging infrastructure on the country to pave the way for more EVs. 
Well, let's ask our in-house EV correspondent, producer Austin Colon, to join us now and tell us a bit more about Electrify America. Hey, Austin. Hey, Austin. Hey, Arana. Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me on. Uh, as you both know, I'm a bit of a road trip lover. Uh, in just the past year, I've put about 30,000 miles on my EV traveling around the U.S. Yeah, you drove coast to coast. Right. Yeah. I live in New York City and I drove from Brooklyn all the way to San Francisco. And let me tell you, that was the trip of a lifetime. But during that trip and a lot of my other trips, I've encountered just about every type of charger that the country has, including Electrify America. So what is the state of Electrify America out there? Well, in my experience, Greg, it's not great. Uh, I don't think I've ever stopped at an Electrify America station where every stall works. Oof, I've seen that too. Long lines, people frustrated, waiting. Yeah, exactly. And it's not just you and me. It was actually rated as the worst charging network in a JD Power study. And this really matters because we're trying to get more and more people to shift to driving electric vehicles. And range anxiety is a huge thing. People are worried they're going to run out of power. So at this time, we need to be moving more quickly to decarbonize. This can really slow things down. Yeah, exactly. And that's a real bummer. I mean, I'd love for everyone's early experience driving EVs to be as positive as mine, but it's often not the case. Well, not yet. I learned just about every EV manufacturer in the U.S. has decided to switch to Tesla's charging standard. And a big reason for that decision is because of their frustration with Electrify America's network. And that's going to slow down EV adoption because people don't want to buy a car with an outdated charging standard. And right now, outside of Tesla, that's what they're being offered. Right. And there's still lots of details to work out about how different car makers are going to use that Tesla network. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is looking to put money into building more charging infrastructure. Right. And the good news, Greg, is that the administration has also included standards and benchmarks that the chargers must hit to be funded. So hopefully that's going to help relieve some of the frustration that EV drivers have been feeling all over the country. But then there's another part of me that can't help but wonder what it would have been like had the regulators created strict operating standards for Electrify America from the beginning. I feel like we'd be so much farther along. Yeah, that would have made things a lot easier. Thanks for that update, Austin. Anytime. It's pretty amazing we can still see the aftermath of the VW cheating settlement affecting our lives today, both the good and the bad. Yes, though I wish these companies getting caught would be more of a deterrent to the industry as a whole. Right. It still feels like these are kind of parking tickets or the cost of doing business. And the best way to stop this kind of cheating is to move away from internal combustion engines that have emissions towards zero emissions or electric cars. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate can be hard, and it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of our society. You can help us get more people talking about climate by starting your own climate conversation today or by giving us a rating or a review. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Ariana Brocious is co-host, editor, and producer. Austin Colon is producer and editor. Megan Basilia is our production manager. Wincy Shada is our development manager. Ben Testani is our communications manager. Jenny Lawton is consulting producer. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy and Philip Young are co-CEOs of the Commonwealth Club World Affairs, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>